0: And I look down and I get an email, and the email says "jailbreak!" exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I open it up, and it's Tarzan, and he's like, "Um, "Great news! You know, I did a jailbreak out of Panama. (laughs) I went to Costa Rica. They sent me to Cuba, and now I'm back in Russia. We can make the movie." (laughs) And it was like it was like a kid, you know what I mean? It was like Christmas. It could have been the same. It was like the tone of the email.
1: I was doing my best making impression. I am out of the office. You are hearing Chris Long, pasty white, no suntan Chris Long. As you're listening, I am on vacation. So, you know, a round of applause for Cowboy Reed. Cowboy Reed has worked 800 consecutive weeks in this little studio. Uh, I've been right there with him, but my man is working his ass off. He works harder than me because he has to clean up my mess um i try to clean it up with him but we've been going for a long time here uh at at Greenlight studio so shout out to him shout out to john uh everybody need a little break right and i feel like shit because now i'm saying like yeah i'm at the bahamas i took the show on the road down to the bahamas well i am unplugging or trying to getting ready for the nfl draft so uh, in the event that i missed anything big i'm sorry but we got a great interview for you today, a little change of pace, and I wanna do more of these. Like We get away from it with everything going on with sports. Like I just love sitting down one-on-one and interviewing people that interest me outside the world of sports. So apologies if you like it, we'll do more of it. And if you don't like it, um, give this one a chance. If, if you're just thinking, I just wanna talk football, give this one a chance. Tiller Russell, he is a director, producer, he's a filmmaker. Uh, with a knack for finding these kind of like true crime stories that have a larger than life uh, vibe to them, like the the characters are larger than life. He's very good at identifying like who's gonna be the hook for this doc. I gotta have one guy who's magnetic. The first thing that I saw him do was the 7-5. I saw the 7-5 like last summer and didn't, didn't even think to look at who produced it, um, who directed it, anything like that. I had no idea, you know, who Tiller Russell was, but I loved the series. And the seven five was, you know, a true crime deal, it was a police corruption thing. And this one focused on Michael Dowd. Simply put, one of the most corrupt cops of all time. He's out of jail now, he's out of prison. But he went away back in like the eighties or like the beginning of the eighties up in New York. I mean, this guy had his hands in anything illegal you could possibly imagine. And Tiller did a great job of peeling back the curtain on just how corrupt a police precinct can be, and obviously we see issues today with police. But imagine how unchecked it was in the '80s. It's actually incredible to to consider. And watching something like the Seven Five certainly makes your wheels turn a little bit. Um, you know, and the one I saw recently was Operation Odessa. That's the one. You know, you've probably seen Seven Five. It's been around for some years, but Operation Odessa was kind of hot on Netflix this year. It was very hot on Netflix, and it should have been. It was a damn good documentary. How about this plot? Russian mobsters selling military submarines to uh, a Colombian cartel for drug smuggling. Like, how's that for, for an elevator pitch? Like, you had me there, but you talk about some of the characters in this thing. I mean, um, some of the most cunning Scary dudes like a Tony Yester, who uh, who you're gonna hear me and Tiller talk about, right down to probably the most magnetic dude in the whole in the whole deal. Um, his name is Tarzan. He's a Russian guy named Tarzan. Russian guy named Tarzan that went to Russia. He was living in Miami dealing with these cocaine dealers and went back to Russia. To buy when the Soviet Union fell, they were just like offloading like helicopters and shit, like a fire sale of helicopters. They they couldn't get rid of them, like they couldn't get rid of them. So these things were cheap, and these guys were going over there to Russia, and they were and they were buying fleets of helicopters and and uh, and trying to you know uh, send them down to the Colombian cartel and that sort of thing. And in this story, as it weaves together a bunch of different subplots. You're gonna hear names like Pablo Escobar. Like, these guys were legit. And um, some of the characters in this Operation Odessa are incredibly magnetic. But there's a side to it that's like, this anti-hero genre is really picking up a lot of steam when it comes to, you know, we, we've always liked true crime, but I feel like, we, we, you think about Breaking Bad, that whole show is predicated on watching a bad guy unravel. Like a good guy turn into a bad guy and become an anti-hero. But I mean like to, to just go to show you how, you know, I mentioned Tony Esther earlier. His character just jump, jumped off the screen. Um, you know, it'd be enough if you had Tarzan alone. Uh, but this guy was just a total, like a gangster and he was charismatic. He's a guy that like if you didn't know that he's probably killed a bunch of people, you'd wanna hang out with him. And I think that's the most interesting thing about considering who you're rooting for as you're watching or who you find yourself like drawn to. Like, I'd love to have a beer with that guy. And then you like find out who that guy is. Like he has a knack Tiller had, you know, for identifying not only this incredible story, but like the characters in it, bringing them to life. And then the links that he had to go to to interview people like Tony Esther, who's like on the run, like he's he's been on the run for years. He had to meet this guy in an airplane hangar somewhere in Africa africa is the biggest fucking continent in the world by the way okay you guys probably already knew that don't know how big it is google like africa actual size they'll lay china india the united states on top of that motherfucker and there's still continents to go (laughs) the subheading when he met tony esther is somewhere in africa if you're meeting with somebody who has to like do one of those meetings and it's like meet me in africa like it's pretty legit You know, you watch one of these like uh, cop mysteries, they just put the shadow over the guy's face and Queens and they give him the robot voice. But he had to meet somebody somewhere in Africa, like PJ's, Hanger. So Tiller Russell, the backstories are incredible. Obviously, a great storyteller. I was nervous about interviewing him because I think of these guys as being so like artistic and smart and like I'm just me. But John put it really well when I was getting ready to talk to Tiller. He was like, these guys, their job is to pitch these stories to be able to go out and execute these projects. They're charismatic guys, and Tiller was an incredibly charismatic guy, and I thought a very authentic guy in getting to talk to him. So, fun interview, ton of stories. Uh, He's also done uh, the story about the serial killer, Richard Ramirez, Night Stalker. He did that as well, and we talked about that a bit. Like, you know, how do you handle stuff like that? It's a heavy, heavy topic. It's not just like your run-of-the-mill drug war kind of documentary that you can spice up and make fun, even though right on the surface there's a lot of crime and violence and that sort of thing. And we got to question who we're rooting for and, you know, why we're attracted to these type of stories. Like, you can't have fun with a serial killer documentary, You gotta handle that with care. That was interesting to talk to him about as well. So, without further ado, I didn't mean to rub the vacation thing uh, in. I may or may not be drunk on a beach. I hope you guys are having a great day, and here's Tiller Russell. Tiller Russell's here. Filmmaker, uh, most recent work, Silk Road. Off the top, I'm gonna tell Tiller, I haven't seen it yet, because I'm halfway through American Kingpin. We will talk about that in a little bit. I know him from The Seven Five and from Operation Odessa, which Operation Odessa is a kick-ass time. Like everything about that movie, that documentary is kick-ass. It is fun, it is interesting, it is a rabbit hole, you gotta check it out. And if you haven't, we're probably gonna spoil some shit, so uh, just a heads up.
0: It was a caper making that thing too, as you can imagine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man, it was. uh, It looked like a lot of fun to make. I mean, some characters, and I, I guess that Let's start with Operation Odessa,
0: because it. it's, on,
1: it's on the top of my head. Why do you think it is that we do so much Italian mob stuff, and the Russian mob stuff seems like such an untapped resource in entertainment?
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I th- there's a couple of things to it, right? Like, On the one hand, you've had all these amazing Italian-American storytellers that have kind of told their version of the culture and the like gangster outlaw America, right? So whether that's Mario Puzo initially writing The Godfather and then, you know, Coppola picking it up or Scorsese doing his version of like, you know crime in New York, you know, endlessly which I could just like, make it never end. The Irishman could have been like 20 more hours. Yeah, and I'd I know, have
1: been it was pretty amazing.
0: Um, but like the weird thing with the Russian mob stuff is that that is a culture which is pretty hermetic like there's very few outsiders in and and so the public hasn't gotten that big of a window into it because it's um it's serious shit those guys are those guys are not to be trifled with you know i mean i guess none of these guys are really but but there's something about that that's kind of a that that's very heavyweight and and what was funny about operation odessa is know you go into it thinking like russian mob eastern you know vigo and eastern hell yeah
1: shower scene
0: exactly (laughs) right so that's like what sticks in your head and then unfortunately and then and the but yet like the tone of operation odessa was you know and i'll give you the quick sort of like story about how the damn thing happened which was years ago this narc i knew called me and he was like Dude, there's this Russian mobster who goes by the name Tarzan, and he used to run his operation out of a strip club in Miami named after his favorite movie, Porky's. Yeah. Yeah. And he's locked up in like a Panamanian prison. Do you want the guy's cell phone number? And I was like, hell yes, I want this guy's cell phone number.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've never wanted one more.
0: So I, I called I call this guy, you know, thinking like, what the hell is this going to be? He's like, he's in a Panamanian prison. How does he have a cell phone to begin with, you know? And I answer and it's this like larger than life kind of like comical, you know, half out of a Scorsese movie, half out of a Tarantino movie. And he's like, hello, Taylor. you know, you should come down and visit me in Panama. It's amazing down here, you know? And I, and I, and I just thought like, this is going to be one hell of a crazy ride. And so I flew down there to Panama with like, you know, 10 grand taped to my legs, figuring I'm gonna have to peel off bribes and whatever. And I go in there and I get to the prison and I'm at the like prison wall or whatever. And I'm meeting his lawyer and his lawyer's like, all right, here's the plan. We're going to give the guard a hundred bucks and then he's going to open the gate and you just run as fast as you can across the like lower yard. And then you'll get to the other side. There's a steel door and push it open. (laughs) And I'm like, bro, this is the worst plan I've ever heard, you know? Let me back up a step. Like this place was like intergalactic, right? It was like out of Mad Max because the, the guards would leave the prison every day at like 5 PM and just lock it up. And it was like inmate rule at night. So when I showed up, there's like dead bodies and wheelbarrows and shit, you know, they're just wheeling it around like it's cordwood. And I'm like, dude, this looks like beyond Thunderdome, like what's going on here? And, and then I find, so I finally like, you know, stupidly or naively or, you know, whatever version of it, um, you know, begin this caper running across this yard, you know, I gave the guard, I was like, here's 50 bucks, I will give the other 50 (laughs) when I get out, you know, and I go in there and then I push open the door and inside of it is this like, giant Russian bear of a man who's like, Taylor, welcome to Panama, you got great big balls for coming here, you know. (laughs) And, um, and it was just this kind of like crazy, surreal adventure. And then once I was inside the prison, they, there were no beds, right? So these guys in the prison were literally these, like, they were killing people for sleeping on cardboard boxes just to have like that much, there was no water. They had taken like Clorox bottles and they were capturing rainwater so that there was like something to drink. I mean, it was literally out of another galaxy and um but i met tarzan who was this just character you know what i mean and um at the time we couldn't kind of like we couldn't figure out how to do it he was still locked up and then years later what happened was the 75 was out right the like police corruption yeah. documentary and i'm in new york and i'm doing press when that thing is coming out And I'm also writing for a TV show at the time. So I've got like eight weeks off or whatever it is between the season. And I'm in New York doing press for the seven five. And I look down and I get an email and the email says jailbreak exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I open it up and it's Tarzan. And he's like, Great news! You know, I did a jailbreak out of Panama. I went to Costa Rica. They sent me to Cuba, and now I'm back in Russia. We can make the movie. And it was like it was like a kid. You know what I mean? It was like Christmas. It could have been the same. It was like the tone of the email. And so I called my um, producer Eli Holtzman, who's you know good buddy, and we've been making stuff together for years. And I'm like dude, can you get like a million dollars in a week? Because I want to go shoot this movie like right now, as soon as I leave New York. He was like, let me make a phone call and called me back like the next day. And he was like, yeah, I got a million bucks. Start shooting in a week. And so I literally, I've been thinking about it for years, but I had no preparation, no prep time, no nothing. And we literally blasted out of a cannon, went down to Miami, started shooting in Miami. Then- all of a sudden we get to broker a deal with Tarzan in Russia. So I call my wife and I'm like, listen, I know I said I was going to New York, but now I'm in Miami. And actually now I'm going to go to, uh, Moscow. And she was like, what, you know, and so we yeah, Moscow Moscow's and,
1: scary. I feel like probably,
0: you know, the weird, the fascinating, the weird fascinating thing about Moscow is, and I, I had a sort of surreal version of it, right? When you're rolling with the like criminal underworld, it's a it's a weird vantage point on it. But it was I happened to catch it at like the most beautiful time. It was like springtime in Moscow. The city was totally green, spectacularly beautiful, and it was kind of surprisingly wild and fascinating and just weird, you know. So so like amazing crazy dinners and like underworld, you know, whatever. So it was just this like really weird um you know, vantage point from it. And then we shot with him there and then we flew on to Africa. So it was literally the whole thing was this, it was like a gonzo Hunter S Thompson operation, making, making the, making the movie to begin with.
1: And obviously for the people who were with us earlier, I'm presuming the Africa trip was for the, uh, the Nelson yester, Tony. Tony, Yeah. As you called him in the, in, in the doc, but I want to hit that in a few, but you had me at Tarzan, and then like the first five minutes of this guy I had, I was just leaning in and smiling. And I don't know if you set it up to where, there was a moment for me where I was like, oh this guy's really actually a bad guy. You know what I mean? Or like has done some bad things. Like he charmed my socks off in the first couple minutes. And then it kind of got dark and you were like, oh shit. But the entire time I couldn't make sense of, was he supposed to be this lovable idiot or was he just like a mastermind?
0: You know, it's it's a great question. And and like, it's you bring up a really interesting point because really the same has been true for like a lot of my like work and the experience of it, where it's like, on the one hand, these guys are characters, you know, whether it's Michael Dowd in the 7-5 right. or, you know, Tarzan and these guys. So like on the one hand, you don't want to be... Turning it into like cheap, tawdry, you know, entertainment. On the other hand, like the stories are so bonkers, and there is this like weird childlike thing about like Tarzan and about Michael Dowd, too, that you're like, that that is unexpected. And that to me is what's fascinating. It's like, wait a minute, is this guy a killer, or is this guy gonna make me laugh, or is he gonna make me laugh and then shoot me? Well, yeah,
1: I watched Michael Dowd on Joey Diaz's pod like the other day. (laughs) And I'm supremely interested in how folks, I've always been, of course doing a little reading would answer any questions I have, but God knows, uh, I'm not gonna do that. uh, I've always watched documentaries and been like, these guys are just out, like talking about crazy shit. And um, it's just interesting, and I heard you, or I read you uh, talking about horse whispering. You know, trying to get criminals in the chair. What's that like? What's that process? As much as you could tell me, what's that like?
0: It's one of these things where you can't bullshit people in any way, right? So there can be no hustle to the game. Like if somebody says, "Dude, am I going to get burned for doing this?" Like my answer has to be, "Hey, you're a grown man. If you get burned for doing it, like I didn't make you smuggle cocaine coming into the world. Like that was your decision. So if you're telling the story, then." I'm going to do, I'll go to the end of the earth to to tell the story as like powerfully and honestly, and on as big a canvas as possible. But like, dude, I'm not a cop. I'm not the U S attorney's office. So I don't know what's going to happen to you. So you have to really shoot people straight on the one hand.
1: And what could happen?
0: Well, it like, you know, there's these things where it's like, what ended up happening is, you know, Tony Esther eventually got arrested after the movie and is actually locked. I got a call from him the other day. Um, and it was my phone rings, and it's like correctional facility in Florida, you know, whatever. And I, and I always take it because it's like, who knows, you know, what the story is gonna be. And so I answered it, and it's, and he's like, diller it's fucking Tony, man, you know. And, and the, the the craziest thing was, he goes, you know, I never seen that fucking movie, fucking made but it must be pretty fucking good because every fucking prison I go into, everybody knows who I am.
1: You know, you could have done and, voiceovers for uh, Tony, dude, and for Tarzan. You you went from Russian to. Dude, you know, I spent a
0: lot. Of, I spent <laughs> a lot of time with those guys. You know, and and so, and I just fell out laughing because yeah. it was like it was so outrageous. You know. Yeah. But 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 I guess the thing is. How how I always look at it is when you're making the documentaries, a lot of the directing is long before there's ever camera, lights, a chair, any of that stuff. It's sitting down like eye to eye, man to man being like, hey, if you don't like me, if you don't trust me, if you don't think I'm the guy to tell your story, walk away. But if you do, we got to go to the end of the earth to do it because – Um, that's the only way these things work when they're totally real. And when they're just batshit crazy,
1: how does it feel when somebody walks in the room and now you're going to get to know them, you've had that conversation, like, Hey, listen, this is going to be something I got to do it balls to the wall or nothing. And, uh, whatever happens to you happens, you've had that conversation. You've had that heart to heart. I'm sure you have to make some sort of a connection with the subject of your interview for them not to feel, I don't know, like you hate them. Um, but maybe you're at odds with the things they've done and maybe, you know, it's an uncomfortable situation for you. Is it easy to separate it when you're, when you're actually getting the job done?
0: Really interesting, really smart question. Um, the way I look at it is my job is not to make a moral judgment one way or another. Um, it's about trying to get the most um, authentic, honest version of right. a story from as many different angles as possible. So I'll sit with a gangster, but I'm also going to sit with the cop that put him away. I'm going to sit with, you know, the wife that got left behind. I'm going to sit with the best friend that betrayed him. And so it's like each one of these people is a spoke in the wheel that mm. leads to the story. And so I'm trying to... Um, be the one that connects all of them without passing judgment. And then hopefully when the, when the, when the movie's finished or whatever, the audience can watch it. And it's um, I'm not telling you what to think. If you, if you want to think Michael Dowd is a piece of shit and should be locked in jail for the rest of his life, you're entitled to that. Or if you think like, wow, that was like a Scorsese movie, but like real also cool. You're welcome to draw that conclusion. So it's, I want them to be provocative, I guess. And I want people to be, arguing about it
1: has there been one person that you've that you've had to interview that your kind of hair stood on end
0: well i mean you know there there have been several tony yester was a, it was a very serious guy from operation odessa you know and um and and basically you know everyone said it was going to be like categorically impossible to get him to sit down and agree to an interview and then <laughs> you did a good job
1: I- of building that up too i was like there's no fucking way they get this guy
0: And I assumed that it never would happen. So what happened, was so weird what happened. We were in, and so we planned on shooting the movie without it, right? And then we're in Moscow, and I get a WhatsApp message. And the message says, you've talked to the waiters. If you want to know what really happened, come talk to the chef. Meet me in Africa tomorrow for a cup of coffee. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the guy, you know?
1: That's insane. That's so like him, just from knowing him in the movie, that he would have some like just grandiose way of setting up a meeting. I mean, just like from his fashion sense to his charisma and he's the guy I'm thinking about that like, I kind of wondered for a second until you told me that he got picked up again, who was the smartest guy in operation? Odessa to you.
0: That guy was is stone brilliant. And really there's only like, there's, there's a small slice of his whole crazy life story that's told in there. Um, but he was you know at the height of it dude he was on the run from dea the us marshals fbi you know america's most wanted for, for for years you know decades even and he was so sophisticated in the way that he would change identities be in um countries where there were no extradition treaties mm-hmm. and um use his knowledge of both intelligence and the sort of cartel crime war. You know, it's like, it's like Jason Bourne, like as cartel guy.
1: On the other side of it, I'm looking at Juan, who I got nothing against, and or Tarzan, who I got, nothing, but they seem like the times they just accidentally accomplish shit.
0: Right. It's like, it's, and I, I always joke to Tarzan. I was like, dude, you were like the Forrest Gump of crime. You just happened to be there like every crazy deal that ever happened. And he kind of laughed and, but you never quite know, you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is these guys all had, it was like for them, it was the caper of a lifetime right. that they were on. And it was this insane wild ride when they were out ahead of the culture a little bit. The Soviet union had collapsed. Everything's for sale. Who's got the balls to go show up and try to buy a military attack helicopters and submarines, you know?
1: Well, they did and, and it worked and it blew me away. Like explain to me what the fuck was going on in Russia. I know that the Soviet union had collapsed, but just that you could stroll in and impersonate, pablo escobar and get away with it and buy helicopters
0: it's the pre-internet era right dude it's like it's the analog days we're like there's no real way of checking it and the way they explained it to me sort of what was happening in russia was um basically they were like listen if you're the general and you are you know in charge of the military airstrip and the next day the government goes away you're no longer in charge of the military airstrip you own it So if you want to sell something, you sell it. And so it was this like complete seismic shift that happened overnight. And the people that were smart enough to or crooked enough or whatever you want to call it, both, you know, to like play it were the ones who you know sort of became the oligarchs of today. And then the crazy thing with that one is like, dude, they had photographs. They're sitting there and it's like they're shopping for the submarine like they're at Macy's, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And you're just like... really
1: that felt like him in a nutshell to me that picture felt like him in a nutshell to me
0: it's so so funny like with with making these documentaries and the same thing like it's the opposite end of it because it's like it's very serious but like you know when I was making Night Stalker suddenly what we had early on was we had access to all of the crime scene photos Mm. that were taken by the sheriff's department and suddenly like When you have the photographic documentation of the story that goes with it, it just takes it to kind of a new level of um, specificity or like connection with the material because you're like, oh, wow, this is real. And like, here's the photo taken like back in the day when this happened.
1: You've talked about the origin stories of seeing a story like uh, Operation Odessa for the first time, and albeit you had to wait years same thing with the seven five you saw i think michael Dowd on the stand saying i'm a policeman and a criminal is there just an aha moment where you're like there's nothing that's going to get my way no amount of a lack of b-roll is going to get in my way no no amount of like i need this fucking story or is it kind of a multi planer discussion of these are the impediments and i might never get to tell that story but there's a story out there that i just wish i could tell i just don't have like you said whether the pictures or video or the people to talk yeah. to
0: yeah no it's that it's another that's another really great question to me there's a couple of things which is what people don't necessarily um uh, put two and two together about is documentaries need stars just like movies need movie stars right so like you have to have great characters. It's not just the story. It's like, are the characters telling the story larger than life and charismatic and and sort of gripping? So like question one for me is always like, who's the star or stars of this? Can these guys carry your attention for four episodes or for 90 minutes or whatever, whatever sort of the format is, right? And that becomes a big piece of it. Um, and then the next layer is, okay, what are the materials that go around this? You know, do we have photos, or do do we not necessarily need them? or are there wiretaps that we can use? Because really, in a weird way, my docs, it's a very simple set of ingredients. It's firsthand first person interviews with the people who live the story, and as many of them as possible. It's the archival materials, photos, video, wiretaps, whatever the stuff is it's what's the original photography the pictures that we're going to shoot that evoke the world um, for you know that that sort of tell the story visually and then finally it's what's the graphic treatment that fills in the gap okay where does this like how far is it from Moscow to Miami what's required you know sort of that and and that's it so those are the pieces of the puzzle and and I'm kind of and I guess the second part of your question is a great story I will chase like till the end of the earth so Mm -hmm. if it takes like 10 years for that I'll keep it cooking quietly in the background until like all of the ingredients were there Um, and then all of a sudden when it's time and you have the canvas and the access to the people then it's like go make it and then the opposite is is true with you know Silk Road was it was a it was a Rolling Stone article That was, I knew an amazing story about this like young guy who kind of becomes, uh, you know, who creates the like Amazon for dope, you know, and um, it was this amazing story that there was a, a Rolling Stone piece on but The kid, Ross Ulbricht, was locked up in in, uh, MCC Correctional in in New York at the time, MCC New York. And I knew that I was never going to be able to get to him. So that one, it was like, okay, this wants to be a movie because there's all of these... Amazing pieces of information in the story. There's all of the chat logs that this guy had with his other cronies. There's the um, public statements he made. There's the diaries that were on his laptop that was confiscated after he was arrested. So there were all of these elements giving me a window into the uh, into Ross Ulbricht's mind and story. But there's not Ross Ulbricht telling it. So suddenly that becomes actors. Uh, performing that story, but you're trying to use as many of the real elements to make it as authentic, um, you know, to the story as possible.
1: And that story was too good.
0: Well, it was just, it was just, it was just a crazy, you know, and and to me, that's the thing is like these stories, you know, I used to work in, you know, in a writer's room writing, writing for Dick Wolf TV shows. And like, if I came into that writer's room and I pitched a story, Hey, it's three best friends who's, you know, um, are going to buy a submarine for the Kali cartel. And one of them's going to rip them off and disappear with 20 million. They would be like, dude, that's a terrible pitch. You're fired. Get out Mm -hmm. of here. But because it's real, you're like, okay let's do that one, and it's the same thing with Silk Road you're going to tell me a you know twenty four year old kid comes up with a technology that allows anyone on earth to buy dope at any time and it turns out the mailman is accidentally your dope dealer yeah. like and it's real, and that all happened in like two years then then it's like that's a story that's so sort of surreal and hard to um imagine yet it's it's true and so those are the stories that I'm gravitated to that I gravitate towards to tell.
1: What about your decision, project to project? You talk about having a star? How about having a narrator? What goes into deciding if you want a narrator?
0: Um, well, gen- like on on the docs, basically, for the most part I have not had anything in there. I want those people to tell the stories. A little bit when I did the last narc which is the story of the, you know, the murder of this DEA agent Kiki Camarena in Mexico in 1985, I ended up actually doing some amount of the voiceover myself, right? Because I felt like okay, to understand um, why does this story really matter? This is one guy that gets killed in 1985. Why are we still talking about it? Why is Narcos Mexico based on the story? Why am I investigating the real one? So there was some amount of you need to download the audience and say, okay. Here's the history of the drug war. Here's how the game changes. Here are the players in Mexico. And here's why this murder in 1985 unleashed all of the violence that's still engulfing Mexico and spilling over into the American border today. And so in a way, that became, okay, I'm going to tell you the story because I'm the guy investigating it. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, for me to sit down and map out like a pod is stressful. I'm thinking about knowing I have a point A and a point b at the end of a story that's what i know but also knowing that like in interviewing people for months presumably there's going to be other waypoints that i've got to now correct sure. for yeah yeah and maybe when you start you think your b's here and it's all the way the fuck over there do you come into an interview and think i know this thing i need to get him to talk about this thing to fill in this this portion of the story
0: it's it's um this is a really really excellent questions um it you know it's both like on the one hand if i end up making the movie that i thought i was going to make when i set out then i didn't learn anything along the way like i I, like i don't know what the weird turn is going to be but there's always some weird turn where i'm like didn't know that didn't think that's where it was going and that's the movie Um, and so it's that process of discovery that you have to kind of prepare, you think like, this is exactly what it's going to be. And then when the curveball comes, it's like, wow, that's way better than I thought it was going to be. And not at all. And now I'm chasing, I'm chasing that. And so that, that there's that sort of piece of it. But then there's also, when you go into it, you need to be incredibly prepared because it's like, particularly with this crime stuff. Okay. I'm going to talk to, Chris, Chris is going to give me a load of bullshit about this, but I'm also going to talk to Ralph, and I know that Ralph is going to corroborate this piece. So I'm cross-checking, you know, your testimony or, or your, you know, interview against Ralph's interview, and I'm, then I'm able to kind of triangulate. Okay, here's the overlaps. Here's where the discrepancies are. How will these fit together? Um, and so it, is, and I use both a board, and because I've done both writers rooms for like, you know, Dick Wolf TV shows as well as documentaries. So I'm trying to use the tools that I know work from each of them and blend them together to kind of have a, um, a methodology that's, uh, dependable.
1: I wonder how much you gauge on your own or how you would rely on, okay, like I have a bio on this guy and his propensity to tell the truth
0: a lot of it's, you know, having some, some degree of a bullshit meter, right? Like if you're, if you're spending all of your time with, you know, cops and crooks and informants and people like that, um, you know, you have to have a pretty high, um, you know, finely tuned bullshit meter all the time to like traffic. Am I getting hustled here? Cause these are like sort of smart people, that may not be academically book smart, They're educated really or whatever, smart. but know how the streets work yeah. and know how to like
1: spin your and ass And you look like fresh meat. You might not be, but like you probably look like fresh meat. Hundred, Anybody hundred, who's not in their 100%. circle looks like fresh meat. 100%. And yes. the thing that Michael Dowd said when he got in the car was, who's going to play us in the movie? So like you look like fresh meat and like, hey, this is my wow. ticket.
0: Exactly. So it's like this weird combination of like, you know, them thinking like, I'm going to run circles around this moron. And exactly. This is my lottery ticket to Hollywood. Um, and so, so it is this thing where, and, and, and I'm very straight about it, dude. Like I'm not a gangster. I'm not a cop. I don't live in your world. I already know. I have this weird ass (laughs) passport where I get to come visit and you get to tell me about shit, but then I go home, you know? And so it's like, it's, you you know, the job is to be a chronicler, not a participant, you know?
1: Biggest curveball you actually got where that B that B point changed.
0: You know, there's there's one in every like when I first started out making the seven five, I went into it thinking that I was going to make a documentary about the commission that investigated the police corruption after Michael Dowd's. Uh, After he was busted, basically, when Serpico was uh, was sort of um, came forward and unleashed the um, sort of malfeasance and police corruption in New York in the 70s, they had this uh, commission that was convened, the Knapp Commission, which went out to study, hey, was this an isolated uh, incident of corruption or is this epidemic throughout the department? Well, same thing when Michael Dowd got busted, they convened what was called the Mullen Commission and the same thing. was my, Michael Dowd an isolated instance of this or is this citywide corruption? So when I went into it, I was making a movie on the Mullen Commission mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, this is the answer to Serpico all these years later. And I couldn't find anybody, I couldn't find Dowd. Because he had like fallen in the gaps of the digital record, um, and because I use the like software that the like bounty hunters use to track people down and stuff with Dowd. He, there was no record because yeah. it was right when the like digital era was starting. So I got everybody, I sent FedExes all over the country being like, all right, I got everybody, which was total bullshit. I didn't have anybody. It was like, I got everybody I'm telling you're in it either way, mm-hmm. come sit down with me. And if you don't like me, don't trust me, think I'm going to burn you walk away, but I'll meet you anywhere, anytime and, um, vibe with me and see if you want me to tell the story, but I couldn't find out anywhere. Right. And then one day I get a hit on the, on the list. And I was like, God, there's like a known associate. There's this like woman doctor that's listed. Like who the hell is this? Mm -hmm. And so I called on a lark and I'm like, yo, is Mikey there? And she's like, "Uh, yeah, let me put him on, put, you know, hands the phone over to down. He's like, yeah, what do you want? And I'm like, dude, I want to make your movie. And so and then and then suddenly I I called my producers. You know, I called my friend Eli Holtzman again. And I'm like, dude, forget that movie about the Mullen Commission. We're making a movie about Michael Dowd and his corrupt cops. These guys are lunatics. And he was like, let's do that one, you know?
1: How about the anti-hero thread? Because me and my producer were talking about this before you came on. But like when I was growing up in the nineties, I feel like we loved crime thrillers. I I feel like there was like we were into this stuff. I feel like we were maybe not as like openly into anti-hero stories, but from like breaking bad all the way back to the Sopranos, like, and now in entertainment, we consume that with regularity. Do you see that pattern or is it just more avenues to tell stories? So it seems like more,
0: I think in a way it's kind of, I think it's, uniquely American in some way or another. I mean, if you think about the history of the country from like Billy the Kid through the Godfather or whatever, we've always mythologized, romanticized, been fascinated by the outlaws and gangsters and crooks and whatever. And so it's and there are, there are cyclical waves of it, right? Sometimes, you know, when it's like Jack Nicholson movies in the 70s, like he didn't play anything but an antihero, you know, throughout the entire 1970s. And like you turn on any one of those movies and I'll like stop everything and watch right. the whole thing. Or, you know, like you said, it's The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, you know, in the in the 90s or whenever those dropped. And, and, and to me, those are the stories that I'm fascinated by too, you know. Um, and sometimes – you know, there are people who criticize, you know, me as a filmmaker for like, man, why are you always telling the stories of these crooks and, and like whatever? But, but to me, these are stories where the stakes are life and death. Right. Every time these people walk out of their house, you know, they could get whacked. And so that is dr- inherently so dramatic and so fascinating and so um, much more intense than the lives that you know we lead um, as civilians.
1: Where's the line on okay? There's a level of playfulness that we can, the tone can be with like an operation Odessa. Even though there's a lot of guys that are objectively have done fucked up things, and then you go do the night stalker, you got to handle that with care, right? I mean, the you know the victims are just as real in the drug game, but it's it just feels different. And then with the Ted Bundy thing recently and everybody was like oh they made him too sexy not that you can make the night stalker sexy did you think about that
0: yeah it's 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 a hu- it's a huge i think about it all the time every every project and, and the whole time like to me at the end of the day like the simplest direct, uh, definition of what a director does is you're a purveyor of tone like what's the tone of this is it light and flippant is it funny is it serious and dramatic is it you know, horrifying, like that decision determines everything else that's in the, that's in the, that's in the piece. Right. And so you're constantly like refining that. And each one is its own thing. Like Operation Odessa, you're meant to sort of like laugh, you know, and then Night Stalker really it's, it's, you know, it's a horror film, but it's real, you know, so that when you're dealing with the victims that has to be or the survivors or yeah. people who lost a loved one that has to be treated with like deep respect because it's not entertainment it's like the most um painful harrowing moments of these people's lives so it can't be um flippant and uh smart it's got to be uh respectful and so every time throughout the entire project, it's like, ooh, is this, like, should we, do we want another joke in here or do we want this to be emotionally heavy here and like refining it? And you don't know, I mean, you're, I fly by such lights as were given me, you know, in the sense of, I just have my instincts, you know, and I'm trying to do my best and hopefully it's engaging and um, thoughtful and uh, compelling. You know,
1: why Ramirez out of, you know, cause there's so many like crazy sick, cr- you know, characters over the you last know,
0: To me, it was the cops like that, that particular series. I sat down with the two homicide cops who worked that case. Um, and they were, it was really funny. I sat down with them and they had seen my, you know, they'd seen, they were like, you make movies about like lunatics. We're not lunatics. We're just like straight, like, you know, homo- like serious homicide investigators. And I said, I had to tell them, no, it's not that I make movies about, lo- I mean, sometimes I make movies mm-hmm. about lunatics, but like really what it is, is it's people that have extraordinary lives and you guys by dint of what you did and the fact that you collared the biggest serial killer of the 1980s in this massive epic citywide investigation. And that you guys are night and day different. One's like this white Italian old school um, homicide legend. Another, you know, his partner is this young up and comer Latino, you know, youngest guy on the force on the, on the homicide squad. And it's this unlikely pairing of these two guys who come together to work this iconic case in an iconic city about an iconic killer. And it's the combination of, what really struck me about those two guys is they were super real about the human toll that it took on them um, as a father and as a parent and as a, you know, a husband and, and, and a cop and, and as a man. And they were so unexpectedly, I guess, vulnerable and open about it that I was like, man, I've never seen. Uh, I just, I didn't know. And so that's what fascinated me way more so than Ramirez. At the end of the day, you know, it was those two guys and then the strange dignity of the victims and survivors who either had their lives irrevocably scarred from what happened or who, you know, were like, this happened to me, but this does not define me. I'm going to have a beautiful life and just because Richard Ramirez kidnapped me when I was a child doesn't mean I'm going to crumble and have my life destroyed. And that sort of strength and centeredness and power again it lets you talk about the surprises. I sat down with the, you know, this young woman who had been abducted by Richard Ramirez at 6 years old and, you know, molested and miraculously released alive. And I expected to meet this, um, destroyed, broken person. And I had like tears in my eyes, 10 seconds in, because I was like, you're stronger, tougher, smarter, more self, more centered than I am like, and this shit did not break you. And it was so moving to see somebody that was empowered rather than broken by it.
1: And one thing that always comes across to me is like the need for closure first and foremost. I mean, like that to me, it's the last thing you think about, like closure would make things any better, but it seems to make things a lot better for these families.
0: There's a weird thing that happens generally making these, th- making these films or, or shows or whatever, in that what what happens is people carry these stories, these secrets, these, you know, um, powerful experiences inside them their whole lives and never speak about them. And then suddenly they're finally ready to talk for the first time in their lives. And it's, it's almost like this private therapy session between me and one other person. And yet there's a camera there. And at the end of the day, like the whole world is watching, you know? And, and so there's this like cognitive dissonance between the, the intimacy of the connection and the conversation, but like, but it wouldn't be happening if there weren't a camera there and there weren't an audience tuning in. So it's it's a it's a weird combination of events and circumstances, if that makes sense.
1: And do they generally and this might be a sensitive question, so stop me if it is, but like, are you are you granting some leniency in post-production because you're like, what you what you want in there is what's gonna go in there. You know, like certain people that you interview do you handle yeah. certain interviews more with care and then like you you're somebody from the cartel sorry buddy you talk to me you know
0: well my whole deal is like i'm like if you're agreed to sit down with me i'm never going to burn you right. right like i i can't afford to burn people whether it's civilians and victims or whether it's cops or whether it's gangsters you know at the end of the day like my word is my passport. Right. And so everybody gets treated with the same respect. And, and I say, you know, like, cause I'll sit with cops who are investigating a case and they're like, tell me what so-and-so said. It's like, dude, I ain't telling you what so-and-so said. Just like, I, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to give somebody, that's not what I do. My mm-hmm. job is to tell the story and to protect the relationship. And so it's always about, um, I guess, respecting that First and foremost, with everybody, all the time.
1: You got that. You got the clearance process with like dealing with uh, coke dealers and that sort of thing down. But what about like government agencies? Uh... It's
0: it's it's really tricky. I mean, institutions in general are tricky, right? So like, and and oftentimes the stories that I I'm not telling for the most part, you know, even Silk Road is a story that takes place and, you know, eight or nine years ago. And, and I sort of would jokingly say to the producers, this is a period piece because it actually is like 2013 is not 2021. All the tech is different. Everything is different. Generally speaking, I tell stories that are not right now. There are some degree in the past, whether it's Silk Road, eight years in the past, or whether it's Michael Dowd, 30 years in the past, or whether it's Night Stalker, 40 years in the right. past, because when the cops are retired, when the FBI agents are retired, when the DEA guys are retired, suddenly nobody can muzzle them. They can tell their experience as human beings because they're no longer representatives of the institution. They are civilians who have the right to tell their own story. Yet at the same time, you know, much of the material that's in those movies you know, whether it's the photos that are in, you know, Night Stalker from the crime scenes, or whether it's the surveillance video that's in the 7-5, it's the cooperation of DEA or the U.S. Attorney's Office or criminal defense attorneys being like, hey, we trust you to tell this story. So we're going to turn this material over to you. So it's a It's all trust. It's negotiating trust with everybody all the time so that people feel like um, that they won't get burned.
1: Let's talk about Silk Road and uh, before I get you out of here, man, because I'm really looking forward to seeing this. I'm pretty captivated by about halfway through the book, American Kingpin, which is, it's all centers around kind of the same thing with Ross Ulbricht and a guy who, where I'm sitting in the book, he's growing mushrooms. Okay, like just fucking, you know, mushrooms okay like this is like low level stuff and then i know where point b in the story is so tell me what happened to this kid
0: well it's i mean and like what was so crazy about that story is like it all happened in less than two years right from the moment of like having this notion of okay i'm going to create a website i'm going to call it silk road i'm going to and it was a very simple invention basically it was i'm going to use tor which conceals your identity and usage so that you're anonymous when you come onto it. And then you're going to pay with Bitcoin so that the transactions are secure. And then anybody can buy anything from anyone at any time. And there's no trace of it. And so this young guy, you know, kid, frankly, comes up with this idea and, um, it goes supernova overnight and suddenly it metastasizes all over the globe. It's this, he, he goes from kind of dreamer to kingpin, you know, in 18 months and suddenly like the entire, uh, you know, American justice system is like, okay, we're going to catch this kid and we're going to grind him to bits. And so it's a, the compression in the story is what struck me. Normally it takes like a lifetime to become the Godfather. You know, this kid got the express ticket, you know, took the bullet train and did that in, you know, less than two years and literally changed the way the drug game worked and the drug war was fought overnight. And then the way I constructed the movie, it's interesting that you're reading Bolton's book, which was brilliant. Um, Because, that there's so much story in it to condense it into sort of a film what i did is there's a couple of corrupt law enforcement officers that that were Essentially, fleecing Ross—you know, both ripping him off and then trapping him at the same time. Uh, you know, trying to bust him and then trying to rip him off. I combined those two characters into one character, played by the actor Jason Clarke, um, as the like, you know, crooked cop that's trying to take down Ross Ulbricht, who's played by Nick Robinson. Two wonderful, terrific actors. And so, the way I like boiled the story down while staying true to its essence, I hope, is it's the story of these two guys that are like two missiles kind of fired at one another and they're like the last people on earth either one should be dealing with and it's the collision between them that causes the you know the explosion
1: you know you say it happened fast 2021 it makes a lot of sense i mean you know it took you a lifetime to become a mafia kingpin in the 80s today it's emblematic of everything yes it
0: is instant gratification and like that's that's part of what the movie is about too you know on on kind of a, I guess a deeper level is all of us are now used to okay whatever i want to watch whatever i want to listen to whatever i want to eat i want that shit sent to my house pipe mm-hmm. to my computer right now and like so that every like the culture is moving so fast and when that happens there's a disconnect between, Hey man, I'm just doing, I'm just ordering hits, but I'm ordering them on the computer, just like I would order pizza. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's kind of a lack of, um, I guess a disconnect between, you know, intention and what happens in the real world and what happens behind your screen. And, and yet the real world's still out there, you know? And, and so, and, and that really, to me is kind of the, the the heart of the movie i guess you know in some fundamental
1: way and it's probably why ross didn't need to put hits out on people to get the sentence he got like you know that'll scare the government pretty fucking quick you devise a way to sell heroin halfway across the world with an untraceable currency i mean like that's way more terrifying than all the herculean effort michael dowd engaged in to be crooked i mean he did 13 years
0: yeah. Well, no, it's like, dude, it it, it was, and I think, and like, here's a crazy fact, which is Ross got two life sentences plus 40 without the possibility of parole, which is significantly harsher, more draconian sentence than El Chapo got. Right. You know what I mean? So like, that's, that's a crazy fact to me. And, and, and I think that you know, it makes me wonder, anyway, is the reason that sentence was so intense because this isn't just Michael Dowd ripping and running in like, you know, East New York. This is like worldwide. anybody with a phone or a computer, you know, holy shit. it's an existential threat to to law enforcement. And he's right? the first
1: and he's, and the, he's first. the first. And back when me and Cowboy Reed were talking about this, back when the fucking' Silk Road came out, and it was this thing that people just talked about in the shadows. The same thing was true for Bitcoin.
0: Well, and, the, and, and like, the, here's the thing is, but for Silk Road, none of us would know about Bitcoin. That's what put Bitcoin into the zeitgeist when Ross got yeah. busted and like everybody's like, what's Bitcoin. And like that story is why we all know about own, trade, mine, whatever, Bitcoin today.
1: I wonder with Ross, if you did any psychoanalysis of him, I know that you're not like, that's not your job, but amateur psychoanalysis I could see, and I wonder if a lot of this is because I know how the story ends, but I'm like, this guy's a fucking kind of a culty guy. He's got like a cult leader kind of magnetism to him. Did you pick that up at all with him?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, the reason the character was so fascinating for me is like for a couple of reasons, right? On the one hand, it's a kid from Austin that's like a, an Eagle Scout, right? He's like a boy scout. He's got like a physics degree. He's, um, you know... uh, like had all these kind of like naive aspirations but then suddenly you've got this like worldwide platform you've changed your name to the dread pirate roberts you're broadcasting your bullshit to like an eager audience and there's like kind of a megalomania thing that comes with the power and yet the weird thing is it's so isolating. You can't talk to anybody. You can't share who you really are. You can't even really spend the money. You know, he's walking around with you know flip flops and, you know, his laptop and a backpack moving from crash pad to crash pad to stay ahead of the machine. So that weird combination of like, yeah, you've got an audience and you are playing the role of this kingpin yet. You can't talk to anybody you love or share it with anybody. Everybody gets cut out of the circle. And that, like, that kind of weirdness and cognitive dissonance to me it was like, ooh, that's a fascinating character.
1: What was the craziest thing that you found out in learning about the story that they were selling on the Silk Road?
0: When we got into making the movie, I had written all this stuff. And then I went back through all, because I had pulled everything, same way I would do a documentary, right? I pulled all those journal entries. I pulled all the postings of Dread Pirate Roberts. I pulled the chat logs. And I was like, man, working with my editor, who's this brilliant you know, collaborator and partner in crime. And at some point we hit on the idea, man, every word this kid says in voiceover and every word that appears on the screen, we should pull it from the actual words that's in the journals and whatever. And so that, like when you see the movie, all of the voiceover, it's all taken from his words. And the fact that we had access to his voice, both kind of before when he was just dreaming this shit up, like, you know, in Austin to the height of it when he's rocking and rolling and is, you know, really a player to right before the bottom drops out. It was a fascinating record of who he, self-portrait, who he thought he was accidentally left behind. And so to me, the most interesting thing was like, piecing together because you like like in a funny way I think of myself as a portraitist right whether you're painting a portrait of Michael Dowd or Ross Ulbricht or you know the cops that investigated the Night Stalker it's 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 portrait making in some way or another and so with this one it was taking the, the little breadcrumbs that he'd left in his trail and being like okay how do you build like what was going on inside his head along the way. And so that journey was really the, 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 was fascinating for me, you know, as a, as a filmmaker and hopefully, hopefully interesting to audiences too.
1: What's next for you, Tiller?
0: Well, you know, what I'm actually doing is the next movie is Operation Odessa. I've written the script on it. So we're going to go do the feature film remake of that. Um, so, so that's kind of- Who the fuck plays like, Tarzan, man? It's a big question, right? Everybody wants to know. I'm open to suggestions, so you tell me your
1: pitches. Oh, man, I might hit you up after. This is amazing. I can't believe a movie's coming out, and Tarzan's going to be represented in it. i got to think about that one.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm taking suggestions generally. We love casting shit on this. When you (laughs) you get an idea, send it to me at 3 in the morning. Email me at 3 in the morning. I will.
1: I will email it to you. Is there one story out there that you salivate over writing that you just had, or telling that you just haven't yet.
0: There's a bunch, man. I've got, well, I was looking up at like my walls are covered with all of the story ideas that I've been chasing and people, you know, that I want to work with or who've reached out to me. Do you have to protect
1: and those it, ideas? Cause they're not ideas like the things happen. But if you say on this pod, Hey man, I really want to tell you about X. Like then everybody's like, Oh, X. And then they're like looking uh, over. Yes,
0: there. a little. Yeah, I mean, you, to, to, to some extent you do, because you don't necessarily control everybody's stories or whatever. But at the same time, you know, hopefully it's the kind of thing where increasingly, um, hopefully, you know, the audience or the streamer or whatever is, is interested in me telling my specific take on that particular story. But like I just like there's not enough time in the world to tell all the stories that I want to tell. And I always. And like these stories now find me at this point, like people kind of come in over the transom or through, you know, the agents or lawyers or emails or wherever it comes from. And I'm always fascinated because who knows where, you know, you're going to a week from now. You're going to be like, dude, this is a crazy a story. story. <laughs> I'm Dylan Tiller.
1: I got an so- actor for fucking Tarzan and I got a story for you. And by the way, as a side note, open the Rolling Stone article on Ross. And I thought it, I was like, what the fuck does this have to do with Robert Pattinson? Crazy, right? I mean, it was eerie
0: and it's it's crazy and and actually Pattinson and I worked on it together early on and like you know these movies take so long but to to actually get it done by the time it was done he'd kind of aged out of the part and you know whatever was you know on to, busy with whatever he was doing but he and I sat down on it and worked at it worked on it together early on so his DNA's in there a little bit <laughs> Okay
1: good good I was wondering cuz it's too uncanny Till Russell thank you so much um check out Silk Road I uh, have it queued up ready on youtube where else can people see it right now stuck at home
0: it's on apple it's on amazon uh, you know wherever people are watching everywhere
1: sister. everywhere my man tells great stories hope to have you back to talk about the next one teller thanks so much for your time appreciate
0: it brother you'd be good thanks for having me